Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the WAM Podcast. It's an honor to be your host, where I get to introduce listeners to some amazing women who are making a real difference. With our podcasts, you're going to get to hear inspirational stories, personal and professional challenges, how these women, their backgrounds help to shape who they are today, and more importantly, how they're giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. Joining me today, I am delighted, is my friend, Jan Weiss, who is an expert in commercial credit and collections across a number of industries, but she's also an independent producer and so much more. So I'm delighted that she's joining us. So you're going to get to hear her professional journey as well as her expert advice for businesses to view their credit and collections as a profit center and lots more. So let's dive right in with a warm welcome for Jan. Hi, Jan. Uh, Hi, Linda. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted and excited to be here. One of the things that I'd love to kind of kick things off, Jan, if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about you, what it was like growing up, and just to get a sense of your family and just, you know, your personal journey. Sure. Thanks for asking that. I'm a New York City girl, but didn't grow up there. I was born in Brooklyn, moved for a very short while with my family to Bayside, Queens. But since I was five years old, I lived in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh Uh-huh. But you can't take the city out of the girl. You cannot. I still love the city. Always did. Tell us a little bit more about your mom, your dad. Sure. Sure. The home I grew up in was a very active, busy, loving home. My father was a businessman. My mom was a homemaker. But in addition to that, she was almost never in the home because she was always out involved with one civic or philanthropic organization or another. Both of my parents, Linda, were first generation. My father's parents were from West Germany, but he was the first generation born here. My mom's parents were from Russia, but my mom was born here. And my dad was a self-made businessman. He started by putting himself through college, City College in New York, and wound up, and many, maybe some of your listeners will remember the bright yellow pencil with the black eagle on it, the eagle pencil. My dad was the secretary of that corporation, and he reinvented himself after retirement. He went back to school for himself and became a professor so that he could teach college in his retirement because there was no way he was just going to stay home. And a golfer, he wasn't. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, it it sounds like your parents instilled that strong work ethic that you've got, but also that sense of community. Actually, yes. Speaking of community, while my dad was putting himself through school a second time to become a professor, my mom convinced him to become involved in local politics. She had always been the one civically involved in local politics, but she urged him to, and he ran for the board of selectmen. Our town didn't have a mayor. It was run by a board of selectmen, and he ran and he won. 
So not only was he in local politics, he was a professor, politics, and then with your mom, just giving back and being very much involved in philanthropy. Absolutely. When you left off for college, what was your journey like? What were you looking at? Oh, great. Because I did make a pivot, just as my dad made so many pivots in his life. When I started college, I was intending to be a teacher. The first two years, of course, were all prereqs. By my junior year, when I started getting into my major, which was education, because I had planned to be a teacher. But unfortunately, by my junior year, when I started that curriculum, I just was not enjoying those classes. And I said, no, I don't think this is for me. I felt I needed to stay in the program, though, and not change majors because my dad, by that time, had become very seriously ill. And to change majors meant I would have had to stay in, I would have had to delay my graduation, and I felt I couldn't do that. So I stayed with my courses. I graduated on time, and I just thought, well, Jan, you'll worry about getting a job and work because that was what I wanted to do after you graduate. And that's what I did. When I graduated, I went to a recruiter. She helped me prepare a resume because I did have some work experience, little diverse work experience during high school and college that she thought would help me. And she got me an entry level job. This was my first job with a big conglomerate in an entry-level position as, drum roll please, as a collection representative. I don't know if you could hear that drum roll. (laughs) So this is where it started. That's where it started. And I knew that they would put me through their in-house training, which was really just on-the-job training by the people there who had more experience. Mm -hmm. But I was very lucky, Linda. I was lucky in that the recruiter made the right recommendation. And I was lucky that I liked doing the collections work. And I was lucky again, because I just seemed to have a knack for it. Hmm. And I'm sure a lot of the skill sets that you learned in teaching school helped that too. Well, what's helpful I feel for a successful career in credit and collection is understanding like a salesperson, anyone out there selling, you need to understand and listen to the person that you're speaking with. That's the key. Absolutely. And so the types of companies, though, that you've worked with, you know, I notice there's really a theme there have been media companies. Well, there were a lot of media and communications companies. Yes. There was also manufacturing. The first job that I mentioned after college was a manufacturer conglomerate. It was Benrus Corporation. Many of your listeners perhaps may remember Benrus watches, or maybe some of your listeners collect vintage watches, Mm -hmm. but they had other divisions as well. uh, They manufactured watches. They manufactured watch cases. They had pick design, which made small precision industrial component parts. There was a very famous pick catalog at the time. So I had diverse experience in manufacturing watches and jewelry and fine jewelry. One of the other companies I worked for was also a conglomerate, several jewelry manufacturing subsidiaries and divisions. We also sold raw diamonds 
And then I got into media and communications. The first communications company I worked for was called Fleet Call. And many of you may now know that Fleet Call became Nextel Communications. So I was the director of credit and collection for most of those major corporations that I just mentioned. What I love about your message, I mean, there's so many things I love about it, but what I really love is that, you know, you've had a very successful career in this area, which is often overlooked by people as how it could actually be, to your point, a profit center or what you say is a hidden profit center. Now, I know that you've got some advice that you wanted to share that we wanted to share with our listeners who care about their credit and collections, whether it's for a large company or a small company, it doesn't matter. You want to speak to that? Maybe give us some tips? Yes, I'd love to speak to that. First of all, I want to share one very, very important thing, which is I found over the years when I've told people what my profession was, there was a thread of a reaction by everyone. And that thread was basically, oh my, how can you ask people for money? I could never do that. (laughs) And the reality is whether it's a collection job or fundraising for a philanthropic organization, which I also do a lot of, I get the same reaction. Oh, how can you ask people for money? I'll put aside the philanthropic side and just really stick with the business side. And my answer to that was, well, I'm in commercial credit and collection. I'm not asking individuals to go into their pocket to pay. Exactly. I'm contacting businesses who had made purchases on a credit line basis and the business owed the money for a product or a service. It was as simple as that. So that's number one. I just learned early on, because I had wonderful mentors in my first job, that it was a critical job and it really could be and needed to be viewed as a profit center by the senior management if it's a big company or it needs to be viewed that way by the owner or the general manager of a smaller company. Because your profit margin sometimes depends on those borderline credit sales that can either make or break your profit. Absolutely. And for that to happen, I found that it's really important for this, for again, the owner perhaps of a small company or the manager of a small company or the senior management at a big company. Very important that that manager communicate their financial structure and their sales profitability and their gross profit, their net profit, and communicate that with their senior credit manager or their senior accounts receivable manager, whoever's responsible for collecting the bills. And there needs to be a meeting of the mind as to what the corporate risk tolerance level is going to be and should be taken by the credit manager. If that's not shared with the credit manager, then there are sales perhaps being rejected, that awful rejection stamp on an order. Linda, you've been in sales. You know what I'm speaking about. Yeah, yeah. No, there's nothing worse. That's right. So that relationship needs to be changed between sales and credit. They need to work together. I'll give you one of my 
best and most successful relationships with a salesman. Mm. At one of the companies I was working for, the most successful salesman, he made the most money. He was number one. He was the one that worked with me as director of credit and collection the closest. He took me on sales calls, not to collect money, but just to meet key people at his clients. So I knew them. They knew me. I was a smiling face. I was a partner with a right. I was a partner with their salesman. So if we ever hit troubled waters, shall we say, when it came to a past due bill, that salesman was there for me. And he and I worked as a team with the customer to get the matter solved. And I can imagine that a customer would probably be more likely to renew knowing that they can work with you as a partner. Absolutely. It has to be a partnership. And especially now, I mean, let's, maybe you want to just address, it's so hard for so many businesses right now who, you know, as we go through COVID, do you have any special advice? I do. Technology, technology, technology. On a personal level, we're all using whatever technology we have, our phones, our iPads, Zoom, Skype. We're using all of that to stay connected. It's I just urge everyone to be creative and use that technology now to stay in touch with your customers, keep on top of your accounts receivable, and keep your face in front of your customers. Don't let the COVID distance you from your normal work as best as you're able to do with technology. And also you had mentioned that just evaluating every aspect of your process or your relationship and digitizing those processes wherever it's possible. Yeah, there are very, very important tools that the person responsible for credit and collection or AR management has to have in order to do the job, in order to maximize sales, reduce bad debts. I've already mentioned it's important that the management work with the credit professional, senior credit professional, and have a meeting of the minds, have an understanding as to what the credit risk tolerance should be. Once that's established, it's very important for the company to have and keep their credit and collection written policy current and updated. And if they don't have one, listeners, if your company doesn't have one, write one. It's very important. And it goes back to your sales and your customers as well. Because if you can make clear to a customer, your collection representative can make clear to your customer that he or she's trying to collect an owed bill based upon the written policy of the company, that shares with the customer that you're not singling him out, that you have a unique policy that you need to enforce across the board. That helps also in the sales relationship. And that should help the collection representative maintain professionalism and control 
and not let it get personal. It can't ever get personal. In your work and in the different industries that you've been in over the years, would you say that most credit and collections departments are digitized or do you find that they're you know, burdened by manual cumbersome processes? It depends on the size of the company. Large companies, of course, are more automated than small companies that perhaps may be startups and have outstanding bills and they just might have a stack of invoices that they go through periodically to see if the check came in on a manual basis. Larger companies, of course, are automated. But I will say one thing about even the larger companies, Linda, because I have been in this position where I went to work for a large company and they handed me an automated report, their accounts receivable aging, and I couldn't work with it. It didn't come close to having the data on it that I and my collection representative who representatives needed to do their job efficiently and effectively. So I urge all credit professionals to not just, shall I say, not just accept the reports that are given to them. Work with your IT department and say, is there a way that you can also put X, Y, and Z on this report. You may get pushback, but don't accept it. Reports are written, I love IT people, but very often they don't ask the user, the end user, what he or she needs on that report. So they're going to push back on you. You push back on them and say, gee, you know, I really, really need this on this report. Maybe you need for your business, maybe you need the customer's purchase order to Mm. appear. Whatever it is, just make sure the aging report has everything you need if you're working with paper. If you get your aging online and you're going through a digitized AR report, same thing. Make sure there are enough fields there to give you all the data you need. That's great advice. Yeah. Is there any rule of thumb on where do you keep it inside and where do you outsource? The credit and collection policy that needs to be written should dictate that. At a certain past due receivable age, that's when an account should be turned over for collection to a collection agency. If there have been no responses, for example, no responses to the collection efforts at all. They're just totally ignoring your phone calls and your letters. They're totally ignoring you. Send it out promptly according to your credit and collection policy. Got it. And then after the collection agency has it for a certain period of time, per your credit and collection policy, which needs to include a write-off policy, Write it off your books, even if you leave it open with the collection agency, because if they then collect after you've written it off, fine. It comes in. It's journalized as a recovery of bad debts. But that makes sense. Just move on, right? That's right. Move on. Don't close it with the agency when you write it off. Let them keep trying until they tell you either 
do you want to sue this company for the debt because they're also ignoring us? Or do you want to just close the file with us? And what about other resources? Any kinds of resources that you would say to somebody who's taking care of this function that they should take advantage of? Sure, there are. There is, for example, accounts receivable insurance that you can buy. It's a little complicated. I used it. I had it when I was working for one of the big companies. And the key to having accounts receivable insurance is having a thorough understanding of how it works. It's expensive. I looked into it. I researched it. I found a company that I liked. I worked with the salesman of the accounts receivable company that I liked and respected. I'm going to get back to this word respect later, maybe. And I purchased the accounts receivable. My company purchased the accounts receivable insurance. And even though it was expensive, it turned out to be a moneymaker for us. We received back much, much more money than what we paid in fees. So the key is understanding how the accounts receivable insurance works. Also, I recommend joining industry credit groups. You learn from each other. The credit managers have their own credit managers groups. And if you're in an industrial credit group for a particular industry, believe me, you're sharing all the same customers. So credit managers in those settings speak freely with each other and share their reference experience with each other. And that's very, very helpful. Or if you have a dilemma that you don't know how to handle a certain credit situation, you can call one of the members in your credit manager's group. That's also a very terrific resource. There are also lots of companies out there that do ongoing training of your collection staff consultants. If we didn't have COVID, they would go into your offices in person on site and they can train your staff there. But they also now are offering online training. So even during COVID, you can take advantage of this. And also, I'm I'm sure there's lots of trade publications. I'm thinking, you know, Credit Today is is one example. Yeah, there are. Yep, those are also held. And yes, your magazines. Absolutely. Thank you for adding that. I forgot that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, and thank you, because that's all wonderful advice. Anything else that we should be adding on that front before we uh, was going to ask you a little bit more about some passion projects that you've got? The only thing I would add, and this is a tip for your listeners, about collection agencies. I've worked with so, so many over the years. Some are better than others. Check them out before you use them, of course. Get references on your customers and get references on your vendors and check them out. But that's not really the tip. This is the tip. I found that when I started using a collection agency, the person I was dealing with Maybe he was a salesman for them. Maybe it was the owner of the collection agency. More often than not, would offer me perks. Gee, Jan, I have a couple of theater tickets. Ah, Whereas that wouldn't happen now during COVID time. Or I have a couple of tickets to a Knicks game. 
or a baseball, whatever game. I have box seats. Would you like to go? Or somebody gave me a gift certificate for dinner for two at a famous restaurant in Manhattan. Would you like them? I was always very, very appreciative, thanked them very, very much, and said, gee, no thanks. The only thing I would like from you is for your company to do a good job on my claims. That is the tip. Why? Now I have to explain why. Somebody may say, well, what's the harm? This is the harm. At some point, you're going to the credit manager or director is going to be analyzing the success rate, the collection rate that the collection agency is performing for you. And it may not be good or it may not be good enough. At that point, you may need to leave that collection agency and go to someone else or at least maybe reduce the amount of claims and start giving some claims to another agency, which I would recommend not putting all your eggs in one basket either. But if you want to stop using that agency, but that agency has been giving you perks, you're now friends with the salesperson. You're now friends or on a friendlier basis with the owner. You're not necessarily going to be able to make the right business decision for your company because you're going to have this little conflict in your mind. Oh gosh, he's been so nice. He's given me so many tickets or treated me to dinner. You don't want to be in that position. You don't need that person as your friend. Your priority needs to be your success or failure with your company. It's not worth the tickets. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So thank you for those tips. We'll continue to come back to you for updates on that. But in the meantime, I've been interested in hearing more about your passion project as an independent producer. And I understand it's with a Jewish broadcasting company. Uh, Jewish Broadcasting Service. Mm -hmm. And I had an opportunity, I'm going to use this word again, pivot. This opportunity just kind of fell into my lap. And I thought it would be a very interesting, different thing for me to do. I've always been involved in finance, not so much creativity, but maybe that's not so true either. You have to be creative in business. Mm -hmm. I had this opportunity and I have, yes, been dabbling in producing some television shows and I love it. And it's very interesting for me. I'm meeting new people that I never would have met before and I'm finding it challenging and a lot of fun. Can you give us a hint on an upcoming show or something that we might look forward to to watching? Well, I'll share with you about a show that I recently produced, and that was with, there is a nonprofit that is a global organization. It's called ISRAAID, I-S-R-A-A-I-D. They send teams all over the world to help during a crisis. And they're usually the first team in, whether they're going from Israel, if you couldn't tell from the name, this is a company organization that's based in Israel, even though they have teams all over, whether they're flying their team into Haiti after that awful, awful earthquake, or Puerto Rico, or Texas during hurricanes for floods, California to help with forest fires 
and they're sending in medical teams to deal with all the medical issues and all the humanitarian needs created during and after these crises. And that was just so exciting for me to be able to produce that show to help get the word out about a wonderful organization that Israel has developed and sprouted and that has now grown throughout the world. That's fabulous. Wow. That's some project to be involved in. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. And just one of the things, because we're closing in on our time, but I want to make sure that we get to two more things. I always love to ask growing up and even now, who are your biggest influencers? My biggest influencers, of course, first and foremost, were my parents for some of the reasons I already shared mm-hmm. with your listeners. They just led me down the right path by the way they lived their lives. And in addition to my parents, I would say my mentors, especially at my first job, which by the way, all of my mentors there were male from the senior management team, the vice president, the president. You know, these were people I worked with on a daily basis. They introduced me to their outside auditing team. So I worked with the senior auditors. That was very, very interesting because that company's accounts receivable was totally collateralized to the bank. So the bank for our commercial loan. So they sent auditors in all the time. They weren't bank auditors. They were outside auditors, one of the largest in the United States at the time. And I had a fabulous learning experience in working with these senior auditors who were assigned to our account. Those were pretty much my mentors. And they just gave me fabulous exposure and opportunities. I'll share, if I may, one other interesting thing about pivoting. I was there working at another company in a credit and collection position. And the senior management came to me and asked me if I would serve as a courier and hand carry some very important documents from Connecticut to Switzerland. Why Switzerland? We manufactured watches. So naturally, we had business relationships in Switzerland. And that had nothing to do with my job, per se, as director of credit collection. But I said to myself, they have confidence in me. They want me to do this. I'm not going to say no. So I went. And it was challenging. Why? Because I had terrible transportation problems. It was the winter and we had snow and we had delays and we had ice and we didn't fly back to the States and land in the same airport. And I had to get back to Connecticut with these documents in time to hand them to the president so that he would have them for a board of directors meeting. Definitely some pressure there. (laughs) There was some pressure there, but there's the other advice. Pivot sees any opportunity that's offered. I was going to ask you, what's the best advice you ever got and how did it change you? I'd have to say that there was no single piece of verbal advice that I got. I just followed the people who I admired, whether they were my business mentors that I admired and followed 
or whether they were people I admired and followed in the philanthropic world. I've been involved in philanthropy since I was in my early 20s. The advice was really just that I gave myself and that, or that I learned from them was to follow those before me who led the way by doing, not by saying. In other words, search out mentors, seize opportunities, and don't be afraid to take risks. Watch what other successful people do if you admire them, because there are plenty of successful people out there who are not necessarily people we should be admiring. Exactly. (laughs) Use your mentors carefully. And then my advice, lastly, is to believe in yourself especially if others believe in you. Oh, that is definitely the best. Well, Jen, thank you. That was awesome. Unfortunately, we're at the end of the show, but I want to thank you for sharing your journey, your excellent insights, and I'm going to look forward to having you back again. Will you come back and talk to us? I would love to do that. Thank you. Sure, anytime, Linda, anytime. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.